Well, we are starting a new sermon series looking at the challenges of living in a spiritually pluralistic society. You know, more than ever in, the U- in U.S. history, our neighbors, our friends, our family, co-workers, we have vastly different views and values of so many things. Uh, we're awash in a sea of competing beliefs and ways of living. And whoever you are, whatever you believe, Christian or not, um, this can create significant challenges um, for how we live. Um, but we often don't know why it's a challenge. We know it's a challenge, but we don't know why. And we get distracted by things that aren't the major challenge. So, obviously, we're going to look at this issue by going through the book of Judges. And you might be thinking when you hear that, no, you're joking. Why would you do that? Because if you know anything about Judges, it's not a feel-good, warm and fuzzy book. It's that section of the Old Testament that a lot of people might think is irrelevant or, uh, you know, at least it's embarrassing. Can we pretend it's not there? Um, And if that's you, just wait and see. Because Judges is extremely relevant for today. Um, And if we understand its message, we'll see it's the opposite of embarrassing. It's freeing, and it's convicting, and it's full of hope. A little background on the book of Judges. So, Judges covers the historical period after the nation of Israel moves into the land of Canaan, the the promised land, but before a kingdom is established. And the book tells the story of the challenges that they face in this early part of their history. Um, So, as we look at today's passage, which I'll read in a second... We're going to look at three things. The problem of idolatry, how they get into that problem, and the way out. So the problem, how we get into it, and the way out. So reading from Judges, it's long, bear with me. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you to the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to pick scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shishai and Ahiman and Telmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sephir. And Caleb said... He who attacks Kiriath Sephir and captures it, I will give him Aksha, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksha, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, What do you want? 
She said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb and as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luce. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. And that is the name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheon and its villages or Tanakh and its villages or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages or the inhabitants of Ibleam and its villages or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or Alab or Aksib or Halva or Afik or Rehob, so the Asherites lived among the Canaanites the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres and in Agilon and in Shalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Ammonites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Sela and upward. Chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said... I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. God, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to hear what do you say to us in this passage? 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so, like I said, exciting passage, right? First, the problem. The problem Israel faces throughout the book of Judges is the allure of idolatry, coexisting idols. So, I just read, in chapter 2, verse 3, God says, The inhabitants shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. The nations living in Canaan worship different gods with different religious practices. So now Israel lives in a spiritually pluralistic age. And the Israelites will be tempted to worship like they do. That's the problem of the book of Judges. Israel will be trapped by their idols. But think about it. Why would they or why would us ever worship other gods? And why would they be trapped? Because the pagan gods, you didn't worship them because you love their character. Right? The pagans didn't believe that the, god, that the god Baal was loving or wise or respectable. They believed quite the opposite. Israel never thought, Baal is more loving than the Lord. Or, Baal has a more enlightened ethical system. You worship Baal because of what Baal promised to give you or to withhold from you. A recent author puts it this way. When we read about the Israelites worshiping Baal, we tend to think of them developing a preference for wooden idol images. But the primary attraction to Baal wasn't a pretty statue. It was economic promise. You worship Baal, a Canaanite god, because Baal promises what you want, but only if you sacrifice. And crucially, Baal is the way you get ahead in Canaan. You see, the idea back then was that every place had a regional god. In Canaan, you worship Baal if you want success. This is the way you get ahead. You aren't going to succeed if you don't worship Baal because Baal is the regional god. You aren't going to have the life you want if you don't sacrifice to this idol or to that. Now, if if you're thinking, people back then were so naive worshiping statues. We're so much more sophisticated today. Um, then you still don't understand idolatry. Because idolatry in the Bible is loving anything more than God. Idolatry is taking something in this world, financial success or security, romantic love, comfort, power, status, whatever it is, and making that the thing we most desire. We make something an idol when we take a created thing, which is good, And we make it the object of our devotion. We make it the thing we live for and we fight for. And that's why in Ezekiel chapter 14, God tells Israel that they have taken their idols into their hearts. The issue is not just the statue. It's here. And when we long for that thing more than God, we look anywhere to get it. That's why the Ten Commandments start with, You shall have no other God beside me and end with you shall not covet. Because you don't break any other commandment without breaking the first and the last. You don't disobey God unless there's something else you love more, something you want more than God. We disobey when we desire idols instead of God. And whenever you want something more than you want God, you will look to some created thing to give you your ultimate desire. 
And you will disobey God in order to get it. And this is what's so amazing about the book of Judges. We don't see outright rejection of God in favor of Baal. They don't leave one altar for the other. They don't, uh, you know, leave one religion for the next. Israel's problem is coexisting idolatry. Israel worships the Lord, and they also worship the gods of the nations. Their worship of God has completely changed as a result, as we'll see. But Israel does not stop worshiping the Lord outright. They still bring sacrifices. They still observe rituals. When things go wrong, they cry out to God. But they are worshiping false gods alongside the Lord. They go to the tabernacle of the Lord and to the temple of Baal. They offer sacrifices to the Lord and also to Moloch. And do you know how they would worship Moloch? So this is a description, historical account. They heated him, the, the statue of Moloch, from his lower parts and his hands, the statue, his hands being stretched out and made hot. They put the child between his hands and it was burnt. When it vehemently cried out, the priests beat a drum that the father might not hear the voice of his son and his heart might not be moved. They gave their children as burnt sacrifices to a demon, and then they had the audacity to bring thank offerings to the Lord. They're still going through the motions of worshiping the Lord, but God says they are trapped. If you've taken another God into your heart, you have rejected the Lord completely. Why? Idolatry is saying to God, there is something you aren't giving me, but I desire it more than you. So I will look somewhere else to get it. I'll give myself to whatever will give it to me. I will sacrifice at that altar if it will give me what I want. Idolatry is saying, God, you've let me down. I need this. I love this more than I love you. And this is our problem today. That we would reject God without even knowing it. And this threat is more insidious than we recognize. Because, you know, back then, you know, at least they bowed down in front of stone or wooden altars. You know when you're worshiping at that altar. Those idols are obvious. But instead, we worship career success, prestige, leisure, comfort, romantic relationships, sex, or expressing ourselves. We give our lives to our idols whenever we think this is just the way things are. This is just the way things work. Baal is the God in Canaan. So we overwork because, I mean, everybody does. We take lavish vacations or we constantly buy new or expensive things because everybody does. That's how people do it here. We look at illicit images or we follow our hearts when God's ethical standards get in the way or when our own promises get in the way, because everybody does. We cut corners, we shade the truth, we take credit for others' work, but you have to do it this way or you won't survive. And that's how the Israelites were reasoning, too. We haven't rejected God. This is just what you have to do if you're going to survive in the wilderness. God says, no, 
You need to drive out the idols around you. You must completely drive out every false god before it can ensnare your heart without your even knowing it. So our problem is the allure of idols. Second, this passage tells us that we get into this problem because we won't obey God. God says in chapter 2, you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? What's going on? Let's, let's remember this incident in the historical context. So over 400 years before this passage, God promised Abraham that God would bless him and make him a blessing to the nations. So God would give Abraham and his descendants an inheritance, a land of their own. But first, Israel would be enslaved in Egypt. And then the Lord rescued them just as he promised. He had compassion on their suffering. He set them free with miraculous signs and wonders. And now God has taken them into the promised land, into Canaan. And God told the Israelites, he said, I am giving you the land. I will be with you. I will drive out the inhabitants before you and you must completely drive them out. I will drive them out. And you must completely drive them out. Remember, God had done amazing supernatural things, right? They had seen plagues in Egypt, parting the Red Sea, feeding them with manna from heaven. And now God says, your hearts will lead you astray. You will forget how much I love you. You will be trapped. If you go and live among these people, this idolatrous people, you will be trapped by their idols and you will burn your children to Moloch. And he says, that's why you must drive out the nations before you. You must completely drive out the idols before you. Now, I want to address a challenging topic very briefly. Because first, you might wonder, how could God tell them to drive out the nations like that? Was God being unjust? Was God commanding genocide on innocent people? And these are difficult questions to answer fully and certainly I don't have enough time, so let me just briefly scratch the surface. God said the reason he was using Israel to drive out the nations was not because Israel was deserving or better. They weren't. God made that really clear in earlier books. God said he was driving out the nations because they were utterly, completely wicked. In fact... This fascinating passage in Genesis 15, when God first makes his promise to Abraham, he does. He says this puzzling thing he says, I'm going to give you the land, but first you're going to be enslaved for 400 years because the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. God tells Abraham he's going to delay giving Abraham his inheritance. By 400 years, because the Amorite's sin has not yet reached full measure. What does that mean? God had been trying to get the Amorites to turn from their wicked ways. But despite God's revelation, they rejected following God for 400 years. And God waited until their judgment was fully justified. Until there was no hope that they would repent. Do you remember when God sent Jonah to Nineveh? Do you remember that story? He sends them and he says, turn from your evil ways. And they do. And so God doesn't bring judgment. 
But then they return to doing evil, so God sends another prophet, Nahum. And he says the same thing, and this time, they don't turn. Ends differently. With the Amorites, God had waited 400 years to bring judgment on their sin. We don't often see that, that side of God's patience here. Uh, and, and you could still have questions about, you know, God bringing judgment on the nations. And that's okay. Those are good questions. And we'd love to talk more about them with you. And if you stick around, you'll hear us address them because um, they're really good questions. Second, if you're a Christian, you might be troubled. You might wonder, you know, does this episode mean we need to separate ourselves from non-Christians or, or should we also take violent action? Uh, no and no, at least not like you think. Um, you know, again, we could talk a lot on this topic. So very briefly, very briefly, the enemies of Christians are never people, but always the spiritual forces behind them. And the weapons of Christians are sharing the good news of gospel lovingly, caring for the poor and needy, and loving our enemies. The early Christians did a better job caring for pagans dying of the plague than the pagans did, often contracting the plague themselves. Right? The people who wanted them dead, they were giving their lives to serve. So, yes, aggressively fight spiritual darkness by loving like Jesus did. And if you're wondering, well, but how does this passage and what Greg just said, how do those fit together? Let's have those conversations, too. Those are good questions. So God knows that Israel will be trapped by the idolatry and evil of the Canaanites, and God knows it will lead to their oppression. But Israel ends up in this situation because they won't obey God. Now, chapter one describes the conquest of Canaan following the death of Joshua. And from a human perspective, this is a largely successful conquest. They mostly take the land and they put the inhabitants to forced labor. And you know what? That's the way of the world. Because you conquer a people and you make them your laborers. Because that guarantees military and economic success going forward. But they don't completely take the land, right? By the end, the Israelites fail to drive out the inhabitants. And we're told here it's because of lack of military strength, right? The other nations have chariots. Now, this chapter tells us a lot more than just what happened. This is the first example of the, the subtlety of the author. Okay? We go through chapter 1, and things start out good. Um, God tells Judah to go, and they go. Right? Good, good start. They have victory. But did you notice they also asked Simeon to come along? You might say, well, that's just good military strategy. But anyways, we keep reading. Then there's the story about Othniel, um, Caleb's daughter. Um, and, you know, Caleb's daughter here, she just exhibits great um, obedience and boldness. But that story is being repeated from Joshua. That story kind of belongs in Joshua. It's not really judges. We get back to the conquest, and then there's also this weird line, and the Lord was with Judah, and Judah took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Right, of course. And first it reads like, yeah, they have chariots. What can you do? Simple military arithmetic. But it said the Lord was with Judah, so why, why include that? Right? Then Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants, nor Ephraim. Then another tribe and another. And the chapter ends quite differently from how it began. The author is giving us hints that there's more going on than meets the eye. 
And then in chapter 2, we get God's perspective. We saw the human perspective, now we get God's perspective. And his perspective is, you have not obeyed my voice. You know, mind you, God isn't surprised by this. You know, in Exodus, when God first gave the covenant, God tells Moses, you are a stiff-necked people, and if I dwell among you, I will consume you. And in Deuteronomy, when he gives the covenant again, he says, you will not obey me, and you will be oppressed by the nations as a result. And then Joshua, just before this chapter, literally one chapter ago, he says to everybody, who will you serve, the Lord or the God of the Amorites? And they all say, we'll serve the Lord. We'll serve the Lord. And immediately Joshua says, no, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. So God expected this, and still our disobedience matters. Humanly speaking, Israel couldn't take the land. There were chariots. The other nations were stronger. And now, humanly speaking, Israel is right. They couldn't do it. That's the lesson of chapter 1, we think. We couldn't do exactly what God asked. Because that's the way the world works. Also, they had chariots. Um, God, driving them out completely is unreasonable. But God says, no, your problem is not that you can't do it. Your problem is you won't do it. God said that he would drive them out. God says their problem is they won't obey. And when God says he will do something through us, that means we can do it if we will do it. God was going to drive the nations out through the obedience of the Israelites. They could do it if they would do it. God's command might not always make sense, quite often, but obedience means trusting God's strength, not our own. When Israel said we couldn't do it, they were trusting in their strength, not God's, because God said he would give them the land. God basically said, yes, it's impossible to you, but trust in my strength. But they didn't trust God's strength. They rejected the promises of God. And where are you struggling in your life to obey God? Where do you think, I just can't do this? But really, your problem, my problem is we won't. I can't admit I've made a mistake. You, you can't be vulnerable like that. Or I can't, I can't take a Sabbath. I can't turn off. There's a reason everybody works these crazy hours, and I, I can't survive if I don't. I've spent my whole life investing in my career. I just can't sacrifice that now. No person is worth it. No person is worth my career. No spouse, no child. Right? Just bang the drum so my heart won't be moved. I can't say no to these desires. I mean, sure, it never leaves me feeling good afterward, but you know, leave my phone or my computer outside my room. I, you know, I need to sleep with it right here. I can't change my life. I can't change the way I'm living. You know, what I've been through, you can't expect me to change after that. I can't confront that person. I might, I might lose the, the friendship. I can't be the one to tell them the truth that they need to hear. Or if I talk about Jesus now, it'll cut off future evangelism opportunities. So we'll just keep talking about these things. Or I've got to take care of my family first. I'll sac- if I sacrifice for others can't do that. I can't do that. Or forgive my enemies. 
No, no, no. You can't forgive. You can't survive if you forgive. Whatever we won't do, whatever God is calling us to do, but we, we feel like we can't, we are rolling out the welcome mat to idols in our life. And they will ensnare us eventually. Do you know why we struggle with doubts? Because we don't obey God with radical, wholehearted, risk-taking discipleship. So that's our problem. We reject God or we struggle in our faith because we won't obey God completely. So we've seen the problems of idols and of disobedience. So what's the solution? Well, to see the solution, we need to see the full story of Judges. Because Judges is masterfully crafted to tell us how we ought to live in a pluralistic society. And it might sound surprising, right? Really, Judges? Yes. Let me explain. There's, there's a very rich, intentional structure to the book that, that you can easily miss. So there's an introduction, there's a course section, there's a conclusion, right? Simple enough. Well, but actually, it starts out with two twin introductions. So there's the passage today. And notice today's passage started by talking about the death of Joshua, after the death of Joshua. Um, But next chapter, it's going to go back to Joshua again. We're going to see Joshua again. There's two introductions. This first one sort of sets the background stage. And then the next one introduces the theme that's going to repeat throughout the core section of the book. And the theme is this. Israel is stuck in cycles of rejecting God, experiencing oppression, but finally being set free by a deliverer before they reject God and experience it all over again. And then the core section of the book is the main narrative that tells that theme again and again and again. And with each cycle, the story is told a little differently. And with each cycle, we see a downward spiral. The judges start out real good. But then we start to see cracks in the character of the judges or cracks in the salvation. The lows get lower and the highs, you'll see. Um, You know, and then finally, the book concludes with these twin appendices, sort of takes a step back to recast the story to make the author's point. And these, if you know, these are not easy bedtime reading. Don't put your kids to bed reading these chapters. And don't look there for spiritual heroes either. They're terrifying pictures of what Israel looks like in its sin. And it's in these final chapters that the author repeats the refrain, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the point of Judges. Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Remember, the problem is that the nations shall become thorns in your sides. Their gods will be a snare to you. But most of the book is not about Israel's sin. All we hear is Israel rejected God again. And then we see the cycle. We don't get a picture of that sin until the very end. Why? The focus is on God's salvation despite their sin. The emphasis is on God's faithfulness. Only at the end are we reminded of our problem we need to be saved from. Why? The author is skillfully saying God's faithfulness is the solution to your idolatry problem. 
God has rescued you again and again, and only God's faithfulness can drive out the idols of your heart. But you need to remember more than just God's faithfulness in general. Because in addition to showing us our problems, Judges also presents a major problem for God. Okay? Look again at chapter 2. God says, look what you have done. I swore to give you the land, and I promised to never break my covenant with you. But now you have disobeyed me, so now I will not drive them out. Let me unpack the full weight of what God is saying. God is saying, look, I chose you, Israel, and I promised to bless you as my beloved people. I promised to bless you. Okay? But I also promised not to bless a disobedient people. And you've disobeyed me. So I've promised to bless you, and I've promised not to bless you. So what do you want me to do? And this divine tension propels the entire Old Testament. Will God keep his promises? Will God be loving and merciful despite their sin or just and righteous because of their sin? Does mercy or justice win out? Yes. The story of judges is every time Israel rejects God, God raises up a judge. Despite Joshua's true prediction of how they would behave, Judges is not picture after picture of Israel's rebellion. They rebel, but God rescues them. They turn away, but God has compassion on them. God raises up another rescuer, another savior, and the author tells us we need a king. We will not stop rejecting God until we have a king. But we need a king who can resolve this divine tension. The salvation in Judges is never permanent. We need a king who can bless us as God's beloved people and who can bless us even though we are disobedient. We need to be saved from ourselves. We need to be forgiven. And we need a king who can set us free for good. Only that king can drive out the idols occupying our hearts. And all of the Old Testament is building to the great climax when God did send a king who would perfectly uphold all of God's promises to bless his people and to punish disobedience. At the cross, when Jesus, the Son of God, died, God poured out all his judgment against sin and evil and idolatry. God's perfect justice and mercy meet at the cross. Jesus purchased our forgiveness so that despite our disobedience, God could bless us. And Jesus came because God loves us. Because he promised to love us. Despite our continual failing, God is faithful. If you're not a Christian or if you're not sure what you believe, the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is primarily a message of hope in what God has done. God invites you to give yourself to him because he has already in Jesus given himself for you. And Jesus' offer of salvation is unlike any you'll find anywhere else. Because if, if God's promises are not conditional, if God looks at evil and idolatry and is not moved, then what, help, what hope is there for the world? Because look around. 
Surely there's something you wish were different. But if God's promises are only conditional, then the more we're honest with ourselves, then what hope is there for the world? Only in Jesus do we get a conditional and unconditional promise for God to make things right. And if you are a Christian, you will not succeed in following God merely by being told, try harder. When our hearts are captured by the idols of this world, we need to replace them with a stronger devotion, a greater worship. And only by seeing God's unrelenting, costly, sacrificial, steadfast love for us can we unseat the idols of the world and follow Jesus, our true king. Do you know why God calls us to radical, costly, risk-taking discipleship? Because he is faithful. God invites us into follow, to follow him in ways that don't make sense because God keeps his promises. You can follow God when it doesn't make sense because God is faithful and keeps his promises. So if you're struggling with doubts, or if your faith feels shaky, the solution is to take hold of God's steadfast love and to obey radically. He will not fail to obey, to keep his promises. So remember his great salvation and walk in radical obedience. Let's pray. God, we thank you um, that your word is true, as true today as it was thousands of years ago. And God, we pray that we would love you wholeheartedly because you have since all eternity, loved us with an unrelenting, steadfast love. God, we pray that you would um, unseat the idols of our hearts. God, that we could fully, wholly, um, with all of our being, love you and worship you and obey you and see you do great things among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Let's rise for the benediction. Um, If you have questions, we'd love to talk to you. Anybody who's a leader in the church, Uh, And unfortunately, a lot of them have left. Um, So you can talk to me um, or Bryce. Um, But also, if you want prayer for anything, I would love to, you know, invite you up and and to pray for you. And if a line um, shows up, other leaders in the church, you know, you may come up and, and don't make people wait. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let us go forth proclaiming our Savior's death and resurrection until he comes. Amen.